Would you remain standing if you're able and join me in prayer? And as we do, um, I just want to remember and ask you to remember with me those that have been impacted by Hurricane Michael. Um, obviously, there's massive damage and loss of life and property and just unsettling. And uh, we're not 100% sure how we can participate, but we're going to be exploring that in terms of being able to reach out and help as a faith-based community here. So would you join in praying with me? Father, um, we're reminded uh, of the truth of Scripture that tells us you're a very present help in times of trouble. You, you care about the things that um, we care about. And you're tender in your mercy towards us and your grace towards us. And Lord, uh, you invite us to come to you in our time of need. And certainly this is one of those. And so, Father, we just commit all of those that are going through this tragedy, the, the loss of life, the loss of property, the uncertainty of the days uh, that are ahead of them. And Lord, I pray that we as a faith community and others like us would rise up um, and that you give us real practical, uh, clear things that we can do to help support them. So we, uh, we commit them to you. And Father, as we uh, prepare our hearts, we want to be uh, people that are hearing from you, and we want to invite you because, Lord, the, the thing we're going to talk about this morning doesn't necessarily come naturally to us or easy for us. It's something we need your grace for, um, this whole idea of forgiving others when they hurt us in various and sundry different ways. And, Father, I, I thank you that it's possible because of your grace and because of your love for us. And so we individually and collectively invite you into the space of our hearts uh, to lead us, to speak to us in this place. And so by your spirit, Lord, I, I commit each individual here, uh, and we do this in the powerful and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, it was either on TV or on the Internet. I can't, I can't remember. But just recently, actually, um, I saw a story uh, of a young man uh, in 1990. His name uh, is Ian Manuel. He was a 13-year-old boy, uh, and he was a couple, you know, connected to a couple of older uh, boys, and they attempted a robbery of a woman and her husband, uh, Debbie Barge, uh, over in Tampa. And uh, when she resisted, Ian pulled out a gun uh, that, that was given to him by the boys, and shot her in the face, um, ruined her jaw or shattered her jaw, her teeth. Um, it went through her cheek. It was uh, a number of surgeries and difficult times that she went through. And all three of the boys, they were arrested, and they were charged with attempted robbery and charged as adults uh, with attempted homicide. Uh, Ian's appointed lawyer encouraged him to plead guilty. He said, you're going to be able to get a plea bargain for 15 years, and with good behavior, you'll be out before that. But the lawyer was mistaken, and uh, this type of crime comes with a mandatory life sentence without the ability to par uh, parole, and uh, that's exactly the sentence that Ian, this 13-year-old boy, received. When he got to prison, juveniles housed in adult prisons are five times more likely to be uh, the victims of sexual abuse. And so to protect him, they placed him in solitary confinement. Um, there in solitary, he began feeling depressed and acting out in different ways. He would cut himself, and every time he did, as punishment, they would extend his solitary confinement um, as punishment for acting out in that way. Uh, he spent 18 years 
and solitary. Once a month, they would allow him to come out and to make a phone call. And on Christmas Eve in 1992, two years after his incarceration, he called Debbie, the woman that he had shot. And when she answered the phone, Ian spilled out an emotional apology, uh, expressing deep regret and remorse. And not only did Debbie forgive him, she became his one friend. Uh, she became his advocate, actually. The woman he shot in the face worked tirelessly for the next 24 years uh, to get his sentence reduced. And here's a picture, a picture of Debbie and Ian. And in 2016, he was released from prison. Um, and he was having his first meal uh, with Debbie, and it was uh, going out for pizza. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Those of us who follow Christ, it's also a required thing. And so my question this morning for all of us is, who do you need to forgive? Is there someone in your life right now that, you know, I, I have to forgive them. But for some reason, it's hard and you haven't done that. Maybe your mom, maybe your brother, maybe your sister, uh, maybe your dad, perhaps an ex-boyfriend, a spouse, Maybe that boy who bullied me in Mrs. Brown's class uh, way back in second grade. Who's that person who said something to you that just shamed you and those words echo in your soul even to this day? All of us are carrying some type of injury, uh, that thing that was said to you that shames you, the people that took advantage of you and perhaps hurt you in a very deep way. And they're not showing one bit of remorse over it. Who do you need to forgive? Well, if you don't forgive, your forgiveness is in question. It, uh, I didn't say it. it. It's something Jesus said. Listen to what he says in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. You can read that in the scriptures or it's in your bulletin. This is the passage we're studying this morning. This is what Jesus said. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how do we do that? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers every night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, of exceptions and God means what he says. As Christians, we've experienced the forgiveness of God, and he calls us with clear, clear calling throughout the Bible that we're to forgive others. Listen to some of the verses in Ephesians 4.32, for example, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. In Luke 6.37, do not judge you and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Colossians 3.13, 
bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I mean, Jesus really wants us to get this. And it's so much so that the context of the passage we're studying here, verses 14 and 15, they're the next verses right after the Lord's Prayer. If you were with us last week, we studied the Lord's Prayer. And in the prayer, he teaches us to pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, forgive us our transgressions, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And then he gives us almost like a PS in verse 14 and 15. And he says, and so... If you've received God's forgiveness, you must forgive. He doesn't repeat anything else in the prayer. He doesn't repeat, hey, Lord, give us today our daily provisions. He doesn't repeat, Lord, keep us from temptations. No, he repeats our need and our call to forgive. Forgive so that you may be forgiven. Now, you might be thinking, if you've been with us for any amount of time, Jeff, this sounds pretty close to a workspace gospel. And I thought we were clear around here that it's all about grace. Remember that? Uh, you're making it sound to me like forgiving someone is, is kind of a prerequisite for my own salvation. And first of all, let me remind you that the, Jesus said this, not me. All right, these are his words. But maybe this will help. Maybe this will help clear up some of the common misconception about the grace of God. And so we've got to hold a couple things in tension here. And let me affirm what the grace of God is. It means unmerited, undeserved favor. It's limitless. It's free. There's not a thing you can do to make God love you anymore. His grace doesn't come to you on the basis of any action that you do, any of your good works. It's simply an act of his loving character to extend his limitless eternal grace to you and me. That's who God is. That's what the grace of God is. But here's how we rightly know when we've experienced and understood God's grace. Because grace rightly understood always has implications for our behavior. When we understand grace properly, it changes the way we live. You see, grace cannot be earned. It's opposed to earning. But it is never opposed to our efforts. When we truly encounter God's grace for our own lives, it leads us to live differently. That's how we know we've really experienced grace. Paul said it this way to Titus. He said, the grace of God instructs us, it teaches us to live differently. The grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, uprightly, and righteously in this present age. Did you hear it? That's what God's grace does. It teaches us how to live. When you encounter grace, it rightly changes your behavior. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you've been touched deeply by God's forgiveness personally, it will lead you to forgive others just as he's forgiven you. Let's illustrate this. Um, And there's a wonderful story that's recorded in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. You can read it later on. Um, But it's a story from the New Testament. And and let me just summarize that for you right now. Uh, There was a religious leader in in the time that Jesus was there in Jerusalem. His name is Simon. And he invited Jesus over to his home as his honored guest. And this is a pretty big risk for Simon. Because Simon's a part of a group of leaders that didn't like Jesus a whole lot. In fact, this is the group of leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin leaders of of the, the Um, Jewish people during that day. 
that wanted Jesus dead. All right? And for Simon to bring him into his home, he's taking a risk with his fellow co-leaders. But see, he's seeking Jesus. And he's throwing a party and, and, and a dinner. And in this day and age, they were kind of a public spectacle. People could come and sit outside the house and sit in the periphery and be within earshot to kind of see what's going on. They didn't have the internet or TV back then. They couldn't binge, binge watch Netflix, all right? This was kind of a form of entertainment for their society. So people would come to see what's going on. And that night, the unwanted guest showed up. You know, you throw a party and you go, oh, they came, oh boy. Well, she came tonight. The person that Simon didn't want that person to come. The Bible refers to her as a sinful woman. The searing guilt and pain that she was feeling from using her body over and over and over again in a way that was sin and dishonoring to her, dishonoring to others, dishonoring to God. She felt the weight of that sin. She felt the searing guilt of that pain, but she had heard about this person, Jesus. And so this evening, she sought him out, and when she got into his presence, she could tell the palpable sense of his grace and his loving demeanor towards her, and she broke. She just began to weep tears of relief, tears of gratitude, tears of joy, as she began to wash his feet with her tear and dry it with her hair. By contrast, Simon, he's kind of intellectually put off by what's all going on. Yeah, he's seeking Jesus, but he's, he's seeking him intellectually, and, and I think he's there trying to impress Jesus. You know, because the, the religious guys of his day, they thought they had it all together. They thought they were this close to God, and they were setting the example. And so he would look at this woman and just go, she's sinful. And there would be such disdain in his attitude and his demeanor towards her. He saw her as a spiritual failure and him as a, a spiritual example that other people should follow. And so when he saw Jesus allowing her to touch him in this manner, he starts even getting an attitude towards Jesus. And Jesus, sensing and knowing his thoughts, said, Simon, uh, I have a question for you. He said, go ahead. He says, well, two people owed a master money. One a very large sum and the other a very small amount of money. But the master forgave both of them. And Simon, who do you think loved the master more? Well, Simon responded, I guess the one who had been forgiven more. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. He says, this woman has washed my dusty feet with her tears and dried it with her hair. She anointed my head with expensive perfume. But when I came into your house, you'd neither washed my feet nor anointed my head customarily with oil. Simon, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who's been forgiven little loves little. Do you see the power of the story? If you can't forgive others, it's my guess that you're coming to Jesus with a pen and paper. You're coming intellectually, but you haven't come to him with tears. You haven't come to him with that broken heart. You see, forgiven people forgive. And unforgiven people, they hold grudges. If you're having trouble forgiving others, you've forgotten or perhaps haven't known God's forgiveness for your own life. Your lack of forgiveness should be like a red light going off on the dashboard of your soul. When a red light goes off in our car, you pay attention, you take action, all right? And to ignore that red light, you ignore it at your own peril. So if the red light of the lack of forgiveness is going off, pay attention to that. 
And I know it's not easy. I don't mean to minimize this. This can be extremely hard. So I want to lay some basics, some foundational basics that I think will be extremely helpful to you um, in this whole thing of forgiving others. And by the way, this is something I've practiced time and again in my own journey of following Christ these past 45 years. And this is very practical and very earthy. So where I go, I go to a parable in Matthew 18 uh, that's a very similar type story to the one we just heard about Simon and the woman. In this particular parable, Jesus tells us that there's two individuals that owe God or owe the master who uh, represents God, who owe a master uh, some money. The first individual owes God three months' worth of wages. So if you make $60,000 a year, that's $15,000. That's, that's quite a bit of money, right? It's a sizable sum. The other individual is described as, when you do the math on it, owes the master 200,000 years worth of wages. It's an impossible sum. It would take 200,000 lifetimes to pay back. So both servants are distraught. This is a powerful master. And they impugn the master and they beg the master, please forgive us our debts. We have no means by which we could pay you. Please forgive us. And the master who's compassionate and forgiving absorbs the debt and frees them from what they owe. Now that individual who was given reprieve on the 200,000 years of debt, he finds the other guy later. And he says, hey, you owe me a couple of bucks. You owe me one day's wage, pay up. And he goes, I didn't have any money to pay him. I don't have any money to pay you. Please, please forgive me my debt. And he says, no way. And he calls the authorities and he has him thrown in jail. Obviously, when the master hears this, he's not very pleased. This is the parable that Jesus teaches. Well, what are some of the lessons? Some of the important lessons for this morning is we owe God far more than we think we do. Our debt with God is far greater than we could ever fathom. We owe God an impossible sum. A second lesson is that we tend to think others owe us more than we owe God. When we look across to the relationships in our lives, we tend to think those individuals owe us more than we owe God. I don't know what it is, but there's something in us that wants us to minimize our own sin problem. We try to convince ourselves that sin's not that big of a deal. Um, I know a bunch of people that even may go so far as to say sin doesn't exist altogether. Um, but I know sin is real. And if you're willing to uh, kind of entertain me here a little bit, I think I can prove it to you. Even if you're one of those individuals that don't think sin is real. So, so I can do that through a couple of questions. And so here they are. Um, do you lock your doors at night? Do you lock your car if it's out on the street? You do that because you acknowledge that there's sin in the world. How about passwords? You have passwords for your online banking, for your investment accounts. Um, you do that because you believe there's sin in the world. And by the way, that's my new pet peeve. I hate passwords. I think they're horrible. Um, this week, I had, uh, my, my computer 
a whole different story. Um, it got run over, um, and so it's no longer died. Um, big old four-ton uh, van ran over my computer. And, uh, and so my new computer doesn't recognize all the passwords. And it's been driving me crazy this week. And every time I have to go look up a password, I think, this proves there's sin in the world. If there was no sin in the world, you'd never need a password ever, right? Because people wouldn't be messing with your stuff. And so we know there's sin. It exists. We, we guard against it. Now, when you hear these examples, you might say, yeah, but Jeff, I'm not a cyber criminal, and I'm not a burglar. I'm not running into people's homes. And, and fair enough. But I want you to know that the same thing that is in them that causes them to act out in that way is in us, causing us to get angry, causing us to gossip, causing us to be unkind in our speech, causing us to maybe think about fudging on our tax returns, causing us to not be so honest about what's going on in our private world. You see, sin is not just somebody else's problem. According to the Bible, it is rampant and it is in every single human being. It's in all of us. Now, I want to go here just to give some of the, the teaching of the scriptures. So I know this is a weighty subject, so if you'll just permit me, I want you to understand what's going on with this. Because if we don't understand how much we owe God, if we don't understand the depth of our problem, we're not, never going to understand how incredible his grace is towards us. So I want to talk to you about five different words that are in the Bible that are used to describe sin. The first one, um, and I won't give you the Greek word for all of these, but the Greek word for the first one, because it's translated literally sin, is uh, harmartia. All right? And it, it, it has the meaning, the connotation that we've missed the bullseye. We've missed the mark. And the bullseye is God's perfect standard of holiness. The bullseye is God's perfect character. And the Bible describes us as people who don't have that character. We've missed the mark. And the Bible refers to that, and it's the word that's used the majority of the time, as sin. We fall short of God's perfect standard. The second word that's used is the word trespass. Again, this is the English interpretation of the Greek word, but it's trespassed. And it's the idea that we slip up. Um, we may not even know it's a sin, but we fall in a way where we slip up. It's like the time when I was a young man and I was driving and I got pulled over for speeding and the officer, of course, comes up to the window and you roll down the window and, son, do you realize how fast you were going? Well, no, sir, I thought I was uh, near the speed limit. And he goes, yeah, you were 20, 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. It's like, oh, really? Oh, no. All right, and, and I didn't know I was going that fast. I was going that fast. All right, that's a trespass. Then there's transgressions. That's the next word. Transgression is I see the line, I know where there's sin, and I'm going to go right across that line anyway. I choose to sin knowingly so. That's called a transgression. The next word, the fourth word, is lawlessness. And this is the, the word is exactly what it sounds like. It's the person who doesn't want God making any claim against their life whatsoever. They want to go out and do whatever they're going to do. And, and I always think about the old soldier in Kipling's Mandalay who said, the ship, uh, ship me somewhere east of Suez where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst. All right? It's just this idea of kind of a rebellious, lawless, not wanting anything to do with God or his standards. But then there's another word. 
And as you can see the progression with the first four words, the, the last word kind of summarizes it all up, and it says, debt. And it's the idea that there's a moral implication to our sin. We owe God a debt. All of us have sinned, and therefore all of us owe this debt that God is describing. So how big is the debt? It's a lot bigger than most of us think. The debt we owe God, according to the scripture, the consequence of our sin is separation from God. We live in spiritual separation from God before we come to Christ. The Bible says we're dead in our transgressions. We're dead in our sins before we knew Christ. And if we, it will lead to physical death in this life. And unless we come to Christ, it leads to eternal death, which is separation of God throughout all, from God throughout all eternity. You see, what I owe God is more than just a couple of hundred bucks for a few white lies. What I owe God is an impossible sum, 200,000 years of wages, if you will, something that I have no capacity of paying. Now, if this sounds off to you or even is challenging to you, let me remind you what it cost God to pay for our sins. It cost him something far more valuable than 200,000 years of wages. It cost him the life of his son. Jesus knew that we could not pay the debt. It was an impossible sum. So in his grace and his love towards us, he decided to pay it for us. And so he took our shame. He took our place. The lashes that were meant for you and for me, he absorbed in his body. The death that we all deserved, he died in our place. This is what it cost him. Which highlights a really important point. And that point is, debt doesn't just go away. Someone always pays. They don't just sweep debts under the rug. If a banker forgives your loan, they absorb the loss. They free you from the debt, but now they've absorbed that loss. When our sin is forgiven, it just didn't go away. The Bible teaches that Jesus took our sin in his body on the cross. He absorbed our punishment. He absorbed our shame. It was paid for, and he paid for it. You see, forgiveness never happens without somebody absorbing the debt, and Jesus absorbed our debt. We need to understand this because when I see this, it is now and it is at this point in time when I understand the extent of my own forgiveness of what I owe God, I realize there's nothing that anybody can ever do to me that will cause them to owe me more than I owe God. Does that make sense? So, as people are, who have been forgiven... Jesus tells us we need to forgive. Forgiving others is the most godlike thing you'll ever do. And I know it's hard. I've had some amazing stories already this morning from the first service. In the trying to put myself in their situation, I was just like, I can't do that. I need God's help with that one. You're going to be in that situation, some of you, some days, and perhaps you're there right now. And so I don't treat this lightly, and I don't need to minimize how difficult this can be, but I want to tell you it's possible. God will give you the strength, and I want to give you some ideas about how. 
And so I'm going to get really granular here. I'm going to get really specific, but I want to do this to, to help you. And so let's start by looking at what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is something that's really concrete. It's an action that you do. It's not a feeling. It's not sending somebody some good vibes. It's an action, and here's what it is. It's relinquishing your right to retribution. You're turning it over to God. You're giving up the right of the demand upon us, what's owed to us. You're saying before God, God, I relinquish my right to retribution with this individual. And this sin against me, I'm releasing it, Lord. And this debt that's owed to me, I'm giving it to you. I refuse to sit as judge and jury over this individual. And Lord, you're the only righteous judge. And so I'm going to trust you. And so, Lord, I'm going to give it to you. It's a very concrete action. And I'm going to forgive this person. That's what forgiveness is, relinquishing your right for retribution. What forgiveness is not, first of all, it's not the little irritations that go on in our relationships. You know, those little personality tendencies that can sometimes drive us crazy. Uh, I, I, I tell people when I've uh, talked to couples teasingly sometimes, I, I, I found this little statement to be true. Opposites attract, and then they attack. And it's usually those little personality things that come out in the relationships. And, and, and I know Jill and I, uh, we have some of those between us. I have more to the, the probably bug her than she bugs me. I actually honestly tried to think about it. I couldn't think of many uh, that Jill does. But, but there's one I know that really, uh, in my personality, kind of gets to my wife quite a bit. And it's that time where, you know, we maybe are out as couples and she's trying to incognito style let me know, hey, she wants to bring my attention to something. Maybe there's something on my face or whatever. And so she's like, you know, and she's really good at kind of not letting anybody else see, but she wants me to see. And I'm like, what, what, huh, what? And in front of everybody, she's like, oh, I'm going to kill you. And it's been going on for 30 years. I'm, 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 there's still hope. Maybe I can get it, all right? These are personality quirks, all right? They're not sins that need forgiveness. We persevere with personality quirks. We forgive offenses, so forgiveness is not that. It's also not saying, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it. When someone apologizes to us, most instinctively we kind of do that sometimes. Okay, yeah, it's all right, fine. And we kind of blow it off. But that doesn't forgive them. It only excuses them. And it's not okay. If it was okay, there wouldn't be any need for forgiveness. And so it's neither of these two things. So forgiveness being the releasing our right to retribution. I want to do something I don't do very often in a message, but I think it'll be really helpful for you. I want to give you some practical steps on how to do this. And these are the steps that I've used as a spiritual discipline for a lifetime, and I still use to this day. So here we go. The first step is if you're struggling to forgive someone, go back to the beginning. Go back to what I shared at the beginning of this, gospel, uh, this message today. Go back to the gospel. Remember, you owe God an impossible sum and recall his forgiveness of you. Charles Spurgeon says, it may be a blessing when we're wronged, a blessing to us. Why? Since it affords us an opportunity of judging whether or not indeed we're the recipients of the pardon which comes from the throne of God. Very sweet it is to pass by another person's offense against us. For that's when we learn how sweet it is that the Lord has pardoned us. So go back and recall the gospel all over again and remind yourself just how much you owe God. 
Second thing, remind yourself how good it is to forgive, how much benefit comes out of it. Usually, if you're carrying around bitterness, the other person doesn't even know anyway, and they're enjoying their life. So why, why ruin your life and they're fine anyway? <laughs> right? Bitterness is a destructive thing. Release it for your own soul's good. That's not a burden God wants you to carry. And then secondarily, it can be a gift to the person who's hurt you, and they know they've hurt you, and they feel guilty over that. You can free them from that guilt by offering gracious forgiveness. And then, my goodness, our, our, our ability to show the world what it means to be followers of Christ, when you look at the story of Debbie and Ian, and you see that kind of powerful forgiveness, what does it do? It draws us to want to know this God. And so it makes us powerful in the lives of people because it points them to something that we don't have the power to do, but God does. And they get to see a picture of grace. The third thing is very, very important. And a lot of people miss this step. Forgiveness can't happen if you're in denial about your pain. And it's okay to hurt. Remember, you shouldn't say, yeah, it's okay. What you need to do is process that pain, grieve that pain, acknowledge that pain, work through that pain. God loves that when we come to him, he wants to carry our burdens. He invites us to carry our burdens. And he tells us in the Psalms that he keeps all of our tears in his bottle. God is tender in his mercies towards you. He's not saying, don't feel. He's saying, forgive. So part of your wholeness, a part of your healing is to process through how much it hurts, and that's okay. Fourth, when it's appropriate, share with the individual who's hurt you how it's hurt you. Now, I say when it's appropriate. Sometimes it's not appropriate. Sometimes the person's unsafe. Sometimes the person's belligerent and downright dangerous. And so you need wisdom here, and if that's the case, draw a boundary. You don't have that conversation. You can't. But when you're able to have this conversation, um, it's a good thing. Again, it's not necessary to restore relationship in order to forgive, but it's helpful. And it's powerful, and I think it seals the forgiveness in both your and the other individual life in a very, very powerful way. So when appropriate, have that conversation. And then fifthly, And regardless of their response, release your right to retribution. Turn it over to God. Forgive them. And I like to do this out loud. I like to do this either if they're there to hear it, to tell them. If they're unwilling to hear it or it's not right to hear, I just say it out loud to the Lord. Lord, I forgive them. And Lord, I'm turning this over to you. I release this to you. And I forgive this individual. It's good for me to hear it. God hears my heart. He hears my words. He hears it however I want to pray. But it's important uh, that we forgive as an act of our will. And then finally, repeat as necessary. I've found that we are human beings. We're not robots. We're not machines. You don't have the ability to forget. Your brain has a memory. All right. Now, it will get easier. But there are going to be times, especially in, in, in situations and cases of deep personal violations, where out of the blue, this temptation to take back your right to retribution is just going to flood your mind and your heart and your emotions. And you're going to be tempted to take it back. And, uh, and so you just go through this discipline all over again. Remind yourself of how much you owe God and remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of all the good that comes out of forgiving this individual. 
grieve that pain and that hurt, whatever that thing is coming up in your heart all over again. Bring it to the Lord. He cares. He'll never, never tire of hearing it from you. And then forgive them. And keep doing that. And keep doing that as long as necessary. What I'm talking about is not easy, but it's possible. And again, you'll never be more like God than when you forgive. So, who do you need to forgive? For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Father, this is a weighty subject. And I know there's a number of people here that are struggling with this, and it's hard. And Lord, you're tender and you're compassion towards us, and you understand but you will give us the grace to do what is right, to do what is necessary, and to forgive. And so, Lord, I pray that those who may be struggling, that they'd reach out to get help, that we as a faith community can surround them with courage and strength and love in that process. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would be mindful of this lesson and that we would adopt this as a way of life for for us. We're going to get hurt. We're going to get hurt in relationships. Help us, Lord, to not be people who carry around grudges, but who emulate you and offer forgiveness. Give us the help we need. We pray this in the powerful and risen name of our Lord. Amen.